Welcome to our Polaris podcast. I'm Jeremy Whitbeck, a partner of Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, and we have with us Jeffrey Powell, the Chief Investment Officer and Managing Partner of Polaris. Jeff, it's great to have you. Hi, good to be here. Yeah, so Jeff, uh, a lot of uh, really interesting things coming out in the news again with regard to the stimulus. Obviously, this is one of the largest stimulus that uh, I believe our country has ever done um, and certainly going to have some ramifications. Um, with regard to uh, different macroeconomic uh, variables. And so really hoping that you can kind of walk us through some of the things that uh, investors and economists are talking about and things that we should be paying attention to. Well, yeah, absolutely. So uh, you know, not quite a week ago, so March 11th, uh, you know, uh, this was uh, signed by the Democrats uh, and uh, signed uh, into uh, bill on Friday, so pretty new stuff to, to us all. Um, $1.9 trillion, which again is a record. Um, and really, you know, the, the, the main plan for this is to go towards uh, a lot of areas that have, uh, are still suffering dramatically with uh, what's going on with, uh, with COVID. And even though we've seen a, a, a massive drop-off, a, a precipitous drop-off in uh, COVID, uh, obviously we're still having people catch it every day and people are still dying from it every day. So uh, a lot of this uh, is going right back into uh, trying to keep the economy together. Uh, it extends a $300 per week jobless and uh, aid that's going to people uh, besides the $1,400 direct payment to uh, most Americans, uh, again, Checks start phasing out at about $75,000 uh, for income per individual. Um, but, you know, and again, are capped out at, at 80. Uh, so maybe not a lot of the people that are listening to our podcast will be eligible for that, but still it has a, a material impact on um, people spending that money. Uh, but in addition, it expands the tax credit for uh, kids under uh, the age of uh, six to 3,600. Uh, 3,000 for children, six to uh, 17. And then a lot of it uh, from there really goes into uh, infrastructure, going back to state and local governments, uh, tribal governments, uh, goes into um, you know, impacting K through 12 schools, uh, as well as uh, vaccine manufacturing distribution uh, as well. Those are the, the main areas that this is sitting on. Uh, and then, uh, you know, looking at the, the list of uh, the last of it really kind of a actually helping out about $30 billion that are set aside to aid restaurants. So it's a pretty wide uh, breadth of where things are hitting. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd said in, in the introduction, you know, really where the, the impact comes is anytime that you're throwing around a couple trillion dollars, uh, you know, really the, the direct impact is going to be how that money is being used. Uh, we've heard certain local governments talking about, you know, having impact to things like the police force and the fire department and other things. And they're not talking equipment, they're talking boots on the ground. Uh, so you're really talking about, again, having a direct impact on unemployment. You're having, uh, uh, you, know, a, a, you know, a measure of safety for uh, what's going on with regard to, to people and, and uh, the different states as they're doing that. So uh, really, it's it, it won't have a immediate for 
uh, all two trillion, uh, but where the immediate is really coming into play. You know, really when you're talking about these kind of stimulus, it's you know, th there's there's different forms of stimulus that we've done in days past. I mean, there was the New Deal during the Great Depression, but that was all about putting people back to work rather than physically handing them money uh, and having that immediacy to this. So uh, there will be, uh, you know, a direct impact early, and then it should be an impact that is carried out over the course of, you know, a 6, 12, maybe even as long as 18-month time period. Yeah, thanks, Jeff, for uh, for that breakdown. And so, on the surface, I mean, injecting 1.9 trillion into the economy—that sounds like an amazing thing, right? So that money is going to get spent. Companies are going to make more money. Um, you would think everyone would be happy, of course, unless you're one of those that unfortunately don't receive the funds. There might be a little bit of a "what about me" there, but overall, it sounds very good. However, with everything, there's always a price. Right? There's no such things as freebies in life, or as we like to say in economics, no free lunch. So what are some of the, the things that people are concerned about? And what are some of the externalities from doing something like this that we should be paying attention to? Well, right now, as we speak, if you uh, go online and even Google what uh, the US uh, uh, total debt is, it's, it's sitting at $28 trillion. And so obviously you're throwing an extra $2 trillion, uh, on top of it, so you're you're adding fuel to the fire uh, of a, a debt situation that uh, at some point uh, one would presume has to be paid back. And so when you are talking about this, I mean, obviously the only luxury that the United States has, unlike a, a lot of other countries, is we're the world's bank, and so we have the ability to print more money, uh, as do others. But I mean, you 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 are looking at a situation where uh, it may have a direct impact on things like inflation, uh, and more importantly, um, where it also drives directly into inflation, is how this might impact uh, the value of a dollar. And so, really, you know, as we look at our client base and and look at you know their age and where they are in their stage of life, a lot of them are in their 50s, 60s, 70s. You know, they're they're what would be considering nearing retirement or in retirement. And so the, really what you want to be looking at is um, how one potentially combats uh, a devaluation of currency over a period of time. Uh, the crazy thing, and we definitely saw the dollar come under pressure last year, uh, but the crazy thing that we're looking at right now uh, with the U.S. dollar, even with everything that's being talked about, is it's actually been growing in strength uh, you know, over the last, uh, you know, year to date, I mean, it's it's up a couple percentage points right now. So we're not seeing that inflation. We're not seeing a devaluation of currency, which turns into inflation. Um, we have seen some crazy things going on uh, with the fixed income marketplace as a direct result of this. But uh, for the most part, we really have not seen uh, that direct impact that most people were expecting and being concerned about. Yeah, so that's that's really uh, it's been interesting to see uh, things kind of maybe happen much slower or maybe not at all. Um, one of the things that I find interesting, and Jeff, this is something that you've talked a lot in the past, is there's a few different ways to pay down the national debt. Obviously, the one way is the traditional way, which is to make cash payments and pay it down. But in the past, you've also talked about inflation and the impact that that can have. How can inflation help pay down the debt? Well, easiest way of describing it is if you kind of think about, um, well, I mean, think about 
if you went back a hundred years, uh, the 1920s, you know, the roaring twenties, you would see uh, millionaires running around and they had top hats and they had chauffeur limousines and so on. A uh, million dollars then is not the same thing as a million dollars today, obviously. And in fact, it's about 10 cents on the dollar over the last hundred years. Uh, it, it actually might be even slightly less than that. So really when you're talking about it, these are people that had tens of millions, not a million dollars in, in the equivalence of what it would be today. And so what you're really talking about is over a period of time with inflation, you're devaluating the buying power uh, that people have. And so that's directly done in the form of what the value of a dollar is. What is a dollar purchase today versus what it was able to purchase you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever. Um, so one of the easiest ways, I mean, if you're sitting on $30 trillion worth of debt, if you were to see the dollar devaluate to, let's say, 50 cents on the dollar, your 30 trillion, and again, it's the 28 that we have, plus the two that we just uh, threw on top of the fire here that hasn't been spent all yet, but will be, uh, you're really looking at, you know, again, having that, that 30 really feel more like 15. Uh, a lot easier to pay off $15 trillion than it is to pay off 30. So uh, the, the one thing that we are very cautious with, with our retirees, is to really look at uh, how their allocation is and really look at the, the impact of that allocation and understanding that if you are uh, doing you know, the rule of thumb of, of investing from days past. So the rule of thumb was you took 120 minus your age, and that should be the equity that's sitting in your portfolio. So if you're younger, you're 30 years old, let's say, or you know, you're mid-20s or whatever, and you're starting to invest, you take 120 minus 30, that's 90. It means your portfolio should be 90% equity. The rest should be in bonds and cash. Uh, so as you age, the percentage of, of money in equity, uh, according to this rule of thumb, should be lower. Uh, and you should be filling or backfilling it with fixed income. So the volatility of your portfolio uh, diminishes or lowers. Um, and as a result of it, you're also dealing with current income uh, versus, again, a growth pattern. That doesn't work in today's market. You know, when you're looking at having an inflation rate that's now it's inching up. It's not, not anything that's that's uh, to be too concerned about, but it's certainly uh, in the high ones at the moment. And then if you were to turn around and look at where the 10-year treasury is, uh, you know, it's moved quite considerably over the course of the last two and a half months from being in the mid 90s to being, uh, or 90s, I should say, uh, 0.94 was where we began the year, if I remember correctly off the top of my head, it was in the mid, uh, you know, 95 basis point range to now 165 basis points or 1.65%. But that's still below where inflation is. So what you're saying is that you're willing to put 100, uh, you know, you're willing to put in an investment that over the course of the next 10 years is really not going to do anything for you uh, at the very least. And if we do have inflation uh, kick up some, then you would actually see it continue to lose buying power. So to me, you know, having a overabundance of fixed income in one's portfolio is not having the same impact that it did in days past. We talk about nominal return and real return. And real return is what you net of inflation. And we're not seeing that uh, for a retiree. So again, the best way in the world that one can combat, you know, throwing an extra couple trillion dollars into uh, debt is to actually try to continue to grow your money. 
Uh, and I mean that in, by owning stock and owning real estate and owning other things that are going to appreciate in value faster than what we're seeing with regard to um, inflation rates. Yeah, Jeff, and thank you for that great explanation. I kind of, I like to uh, think of it kind of like a tidal wave, right? Where inflation is like that tidal wave where initially it causes the tide to recede and everyone kind of gets sucked out there because maybe they're afraid of future uh, implications of everything's happening. They put their money under the mattress or they put it in low yielding instruments, a CD or a bond. And then finally that tidal wave comes and wipes them out. And it's kind of the same thing here where the exact opposite thing that you should be doing if you're concerned about the national debt, if you're concerned about inflation, is putting your money in low yielding instruments. Because to your point, it has no fighting chance then of keeping pace with inflation. And so you have guaranteed, you have locked in purchasing power loss, losses. And so that's something that I don't think can be understated. So, uh, so you alluded to the fact that you can't use 120 minus your age. So um, obviously, there's different rules of thumb. What should investors be using within their portfolio to hedge themselves or to participate on some level with the increase in inflation that's expected? So we kind of back our way into it, Jeremy. I mean, basically, it's it's um, uh, kind of a what amount of risk do you need to take in order to have the retirement that you want uh, versus what you want to take. Um, so we we begin by you know figuring out what the growth rate of a portfolio needs to be. And then we really kind of get down to the personality. You know, we, we have people that, you know, they could be sitting in a 50-50 or a, you know, they could be sitting almost 100% of fixed income and and, uh, and playing that purchasing power loss game uh, right now. And it wouldn't have any kind of material impact on their retirement, but that's not what they want. They want to sit there and see their portfolio grow. They want to see a legacy. They want to be able to give to charity and to give to their families uh, after passing and so on. So really for us, the, the, the biggest thing out there is really understanding uh, the risk reward. Uh, the lowest risk portfolio that you could have would be a 20% equity, 80% bond uh, from, a, from a historical data point. And that gets you to the lowest risk, highest return based upon being on an efficiency frontier. And then from there, as you continue to rise and give more money towards the stock market, you're getting more return, but your portfolio is taking more risk. And at some point, it starts to flatten out a little bit. And really what you're talking about is as you get out you know, into the 80, 90, 100% equity range, the question really becomes, you know, how much additional return are you capturing by going those extra 10, 20% uh, allocations? And that's really, again, for somebody who has the stomach to handle it, 100% equity. I mean, we again just got done saying there's very little areas. I mean, we're expecting high yield to do reasonably well. We've seen converts do really well, but they have a, a very, uh, the, the convertible bond uh, indexes and overall has a huge correlation right now to, to Tesla because of Tesla's growth pattern. And so uh, that index actually has about 7% of its overall value tied into to Tesla. So we got a little cautious with that. We played that a little bit earlier into the year, made almost 50% of our investment and have since moved on. We do not own that as we speak, but we do own high yield in our portfolios. And it is something that we do feel is, is uh, a way of being able to hedge things. I mean, as the economies improve and as the potential of having, uh, uh, basically with a high yield, you're, you're really playing the default risk game. 
So if the economy is improving, the likelihood of default goes down, you are going to see a price appreciation as a result of that, as well as getting more income uh, for being uh, high yield is the, the uh, same thing as talking about junk bonds from days past. But really what you're saying, it's a, it's a non-credit worthy or somebody who has not taken the time to spend the money on getting credit. Uh, so it would be the equivalent of, you know, is it risky to get somebody with a 830 credit rating uh, money versus somebody that has a credit rating in the 500s? You know, yeah, obviously the person that has it in the 500s is not as financially responsible, so therefore they're going to pay more for their debt. And that's the same thing you see going on with uh, with the bond market. And then we could also look internationally. If we were going to start to see the dollar devaluate compared to uh, some of its peers to actually invest in things that are, are not based in U.S. dollars could also have a very material positive impact on a portfolio. Yeah, so uh, Jeff, thank you for uh, for sharing that. Um, one of the things that I, I really like to look at is we've had periods where inflation's ran hot before, right? So the time that uh, comes to mind is the uh, late 80s, 90s, where we had even stagflation within the economy. And we can look at what assets perform to kind of get a, an idea of what we can expect. And Jeff, do you mind sharing with us how did the market do during that period of inflation? And what does that yeah, teach so, what to so, expect? So not to correct you, Jeremy, I apologize for that, but it was actually the late 70s, early 80s where we had oh. the stagflation. Um, and uh, we began our secular bull market in 1982. Um, and you saw hyperinflation at that point. Um, and really, you know, the, the interesting thing uh, about what we saw going on and, and really kind of the aftermath, uh, the beginning of Reaganomics, uh, you know, obviously occurred with, uh, with Ronald Reagan taking office uh, in 1980. And so with looking at what went on there, and this is something that, uh, again, a lot of people are very concerned about inflation. You throw a couple trillion dollars uh, that you didn't have before into debt uh, and spending it, you know, what happens? And you know, Reaganomics was kind of a, an experiment. And if you look at what was going on within it, I mean, our inflation uh, really, it, it peaked in 1982. And so as you saw Reagan, uh, you know, with Arthur Laffer and the Laffer curve and, and uh, kind of the, the uh, mastermind of, of that thought process, uh, spending money that you didn't have to stimulate your economy was the whole theory behind Reaganomics. And what do we see go on from 1982 until his departure from office in 1988? A massive drop in inflation. So a lot of people are worried about having additional debt and a debt load and it causing inflation, but it doesn't necessarily have to walk hand in hand there. You've got, you know, obviously the Laffer curve, which talks about elasticity of money. You've got Keynesian beliefs of, of how uh, debt is is hitting and then you and i were talking offline about uh, modern monetary theory and really kind of trying to explain uh, what's going on really even um, what we've seen happen since the great recession so we've seen a situation where we've added exponential debt uh, to our balance sheets and yet we're still not seeing inflation and so it's it's really kind of an interesting experiment it's trying to explain away uh, something that we haven't seen um 
it, it's really kind of a, a um, almost a um, a lab project and process that we're kind of living through as we speak uh, to really understand why we're not seeing inflation when we are uh, seeing our national debt spike at a level that we've never seen before uh, in our country's history. Yeah, so Jeff, thank you so much for your uh, thoughts and insights on that. Certainly, it's very interesting to see all of this unfold. I guess on one last note, one of the things that we really uh, talk a lot about and pride ourselves in is being tactical. Um, and I know that uh, that's something that uh, is in our core or in our DNA as a firm that we will continue to uh, make changes and navigate as these things unfold around us. I guess any last remarks just with regard to that investment philosophy and how we will uh, navigate uh, these things as they unfold, whichever direction that, that may take us? Well, I mean, I think that the, the, the biggest takeaway is this. I mean, if, if you were a client and, and lived through last year, or if you were a client and lived through 2008 with us, or if you were a client and lived through what we did in 2000 to 2002, uh, the the game plan wasn't too dissimilar. I mean, we, we've learned from each one of these experiences and, and have improved upon what we've done. Uh, but really the bottom line behind it is as we see risk going up within the marketplace, uh, we take chips off the table. And what I mean by that is we lower our equity exposure and we wait to get confirmation that what we're doing is correct. And then we continue to move in that direction. Uh, last year, uh, we had to move very quickly. We had the, the fastest 30% drop in the history of the stock market. Uh, we did a amazing job playing defense. Um, our balance strategies, which historically would have a 60-40 split, were down to 30% uh, equity uh, in the midst of everything going on COVID. We were there and we were uh, very aggressive with it. Our 100% uh, unconstrained strategies that have 100% equity exposure, they were down to 50 or below. Uh, and again, we lost significantly less money than the markets. We then recovered it all. And then if you go back to 2008, again, we played amazing defense. We did not have a single client by the end of 2009 that was not a break even or making money. Uh, again, if you don't remember history, it took until 2013 for the markets to get back to break even. So that, made, that meant that we made money in 09, 10, 11, 12, and then finally the market was making money. But we were way ahead. And we got way ahead by not taking more risk, but understanding when to take less. So the biggest thing that I would throw out there is that if you were going to be a traditionalist and you're going to go out and you're going to throw 80, 90, 100% of your money into the stock market, and you're just going to roller coaster your way through when there is a bad time going on with the market, it's probably unrealistic for you to be at those high of allocations. And the reason for that is human nature being human nature you're going to think that you can stomach 100% equity or even an 80% equity level. And the moment you start seeing material losses within your portfolio, you're going to panic and you're going to sell. And the thing about what we do at Polaris is we're already ahead of that. We're already doing that for you. Uh, so we're keeping out of the car accident. You know, you think about if you've gotten into a car accident, you drive defensively after you've gotten into the accident. The problem is that you're already in the accident. And so you're driving defensively at exactly the wrong time. And so if we can keep you out of that car accident and we can lower your allocation, uh, you know, so again, if you're somebody who wants to be 100% equity, that's great. But if we start seeing it snow outside, uh, you, we're not going to let you drive 100. We're going to slow you down. And so that's what we do every single day here at Polaris is that we're tactical. We're going to be looking at, you know, the broad-based uh, risks that are within the markets. 
And then more importantly, we're also going to be looking at where the strength of the market that's still remaining is. And so for us, we're looking you know, at where the opportunities are within the market, where the next 12 months of earnings growth is going to occur. It does not appear to be what's been driving the markets from 2020. Uh, and we've been proving that with what our performance has been within our portfolio so far in 2021. So we feel like we're very much in front of it. Um, but if the, uh, the game changes, we're uh, certainly uh, not married to our position. We're more than happy to lower allocations and lower exposures to market as necessary in order to be uh, defensive with our clients. And it's something that we continuously do. Yeah, Jeff, thank you so much. And uh, I think that's a beautiful way to end here in that uh, whatever the market throws at us, obviously there's time to play defense, time to play offense, and uh, something that I would agree and argue that we've done a great job of doing within the portfolios. So Jeff, thank you so much for uh, all of the expertise that you shared with us. Oh, my pleasure. So and to everyone, thank you so much for, uh, for uh, listening with us. And as always, be happy, be safe, and be healthy. Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, is a federally registered investment advisor. The information, statements, and opinions expressed in this material are provided for general information only and are subject to change without notice. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, is not intended as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security, and is not intended as individual or specific advice. It should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, if necessary, seek professional advice. Polaris Wealth does not offer professional, legal, or tax advice. All information contained herein is believed to be accurate, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Diversification does not assure a profit or protect against loss. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, unless a client service agreement is in place.